Well, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 23. I'll be starting in verse 10, going all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 33. So if you have just joined us for the first time today, or if you don't remember anything from last week, I just want to give you kind of a bird's eye view and then go down deep into where we are. There are 66 books in the Bible, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. The the first part of the Old Testament is what is called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And inside the Pentateuch is the book of Exodus. And inside the book of Exodus is a section of scripture called the Book of the Covenant. So we're going to be on the second half of the Book of the Covenant this morning. And why that sticks out to us is because many of us are very tempted to avoid the Book of the Covenant because it has laws that confuse us or astound us. And if they mean what they say they mean, then that should frighten us in many ways or terrify us or make us wonder about what in the world is going on. So in context, you've you've got to remember that the Lord in his goodness brought Israel out of slavery and bondage and Egypt and is directing them towards the promised land. He delivered them magnificently through all these miracle-esque performances from above. And on this other side of the Red Sea, you could say he starts giving them laws and more laws and then a lot more laws and more laws and more laws. And it becomes... Ah, cavalier for you to go, I'll just get to the good stuff. Let's start talking about the tabernacle. But I want to encourage you to to look deeper and deeper and deeper, and that's what we'll do this morning. Because we have to deal with the law as every word of the Bible is inspired by the Lord and is good from his people. And every Christian who comes to the text has to work through the Old Covenant and the Old Testament law as it relates to everyday life. Are we bound by it? Is it personally instructive to us? Do you have to follow it? Or or should we just look for different principles that are within the scriptures? Brilliant Reformation era theologians have outlined several purposes for us to, to keep looking at the law, lest we be tempted to just glaze over it bit by bit. The theological giant John Calvin wrestled through what is called the threefold use of the law, where I think he puts in in clear understandings of when we approach large texts like this, what are we supposed to do with all these words? I think it's helpful for us to understand from the outset of how we can see the law. So if you were gone last week, we went through a big block of scripture from chapter 20 through the first part of chapter 23, the law as it's called, and now this section of scripture for us today, we're gonna finish up that bulk of scripture called the law. But if you keep reading the Bible, you will recognize that there are more and more offerings to God's people at that time of more laws because them, maybe like you or me, start living their life and wonder from God's ways. And then they keep going and they might wonder from God's ways. So God in his goodness is giving them more laws in order to understand him by. So what was John Calvin doing when prescribing to us or gifting us these three folds or three uses of the law? There is the first purpose where he says that the law is likened like a mirror. Now, you know a mirror. You look in it. Maybe you run away. You look in it. You wish for things. The law is like a mirror. God's law to his people mirrors the perfect and righteous holiness of God himself. What is God like? Look at the law. 
And you see behind that all of his justice and his mercy and his fairness and his carefulness and his desire for his people to know what in the world is going on. And you look at the law and you see it as a mirror. It exposes a lot of things about you as well. Except when you look at the mirror, you don't see things like God would see things. You actually see your sinfulness or your weakness, or your inability to do all these things that God is telling you to do. It's like an MRI on your heart, where it's exposing everything about you that is so far below the holiness of God. So the law showcases our weakness in doing what is right, while also showing the strength of the Messiah, the Son of God. So the law serves as a mirror. Secondly, the law serves as a boundary or a border, If you are into the sport of pool or cue or whatever it's called, there are boundaries on that table where if you strike a ball, it just won't go off into the kitchen floor. But rather, it's contained on this table. And much like that, the law gives us boundaries or borders because the law serves on putting boundaries around what is good and it's drawing a line around what is evil. And what's so staggering about this is you might look at different things of the law and you go, that seems ridiculous. Who would do that to other people? Or, or if someone did that to me, I would certainly more lash out than what this law is describing. But Jesus or the Lord is establishing goodness with borders and boundaries. So the law draws a line. It separates righteousness from unrighteousness, just from unjustice. And Calvin comments on this purpose by saying, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who, unless forced, have no regard for morality or justice. So what it does is it contains and shows what is good. So you have a mirror and you have a boundary and then you have a third purpose that likens the law to a guide for God's people. The law instructs Christians to what pleases the Father. It reveals how he wants his people to live, how his people should serve, who his people should worship, and how they should worship. The the Christian, we would recognize, delights in the law as God makes himself a showcase to us and how we can delight in him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this heightens in a huge way of what the law is to God's people. R.C. Sproul says, this is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. So we come to the law recognizing that we are justified, not in our obedience to the law, but because of God's deliverance and out of his love, he gives us guides to pursue him and follow him, boundaries in recognizing and keeping us safe of what is good and what is right, and also a mirror to allow ourselves to see ourselves for who we really are, and most joyously to see him for who he really is, holy and majestic. So, that being the case, friend, keep looking at the law. When you come to this passage in Exodus, don't fly through it, but run into it. Let it cause your understanding of the cross and of the resurrection be deeper, richer, and more glorious than ever before. Because God has called his people out of bondage and has brought them into light. And he establishes them, as what I talked about last week, as distinct. And so out of God's goodness, he's showing how his people can be distinct from the world. Because when God's people are distinct from the world, not like the world, the world looks at them or might look at you and go, there's something 
different about that person. And I must know why. So God has called him out. God has called us out and has shown us how he wants us to live. So let me first read to you from verses 10 going through verses 13. And we'll get to our first point that I think seeps to the top of this day's passage. Verse 10 says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So last week I proposed three ways that the Lord is making his people distinct. He was making them distinct in many ways. And here this morning we see three more ways of how the Lord through his law is making his people distinct to the world. The first one is that he is making them a distinct people who have a distinct way of living. So first, there are people who have a distinct way of living. We see this in verses 10 through 13 that I just read. So in this portion of the book, we come to things like acknowledging a Sabbath or annual festivals where where God established for his people regular reminders of their relationship to him and as his worshiping people. The, the weekly Sabbath we see in the scripture, the weekly Sabbath worship provides a renewing reminder every seventh day. The yearly routine would be to provide three renewing reminders corresponding with the agrarian calendar, times of rest and rejoicing and a refocus on who God is through worship. And I think it needs to be said of the constant repetition of worship within the law that God is prescribing to his people at that time. Almost like they forget so often, so he reminds them again to to worship him exclusively. And, And because they need constant reminders, he's establishing things like a Sabbath. So not seven days would go by where they're not to be reminded that they should worship exclusively the Lord. And if several years go by, there are more things that can happen. Now, the laws on Sabbath years and days are shown to us in verse 10 through 12. And what's in view is the Israelites settling here in the promised land. So the Lord is putting things in front of them to to build them up so that when they get into the promised land, they know what they're supposed to do. And in the meantime, they know how they're supposed to act. And so he gives them things like Sabbath rules or festival rules. And I think it would have not been there more quickly had they kept on sinning. Already at this stage in their journey, the Israelites are being prepared for life beyond their receiving of the law. But the Lord is almost going before them, almost knowing, or not almost, very much knowing, that they would fall away or keep their eyes not on him, but on other things around them. So on the seventh year, they're supposed to leave their land unplowed. Why is that? For the poor. Again, another law that seems archaic to us, because many of us don't farm much land around here, I myself have three or four living flowers in my backyard. I originally planted 12. I'm just happy that some of them grow, so the idea of taking time off on the seventh year, there's got to be more in that than just our understanding of it. So in keeping holy, in doing what God says, they don't offer the seventh year's gain to God necessarily, but rather they offer it to those who need it greatly. 
And so within these rules, we, we see behind the text the God who is giving them rules. God is giving them laws. He's one who has great mercy on the poor. They don't have less of an image of himself. Those who might have a lot, you think about it, the, the idea of you having so much gain in your field that you can take a whole year off of growing and harvesting means you have a ton of things, but the Lord still looks at those who have not as his as well. And the emphasis we have seen again and again and again is that the Lord longs to protect those who are outcasts. And throughout the book of the covenant, it's strikingly evident here in a new form of trusting God to provide. Now you've got to think about it. If, if you are living off of your food, the idea of taking a whole year off of planting, growing, and harvesting, the question is, what are you going to eat during that year and maybe after that year? And the Lord, bit by bit, is causing and teaching his people that they can trust him with all of their lives, not just their ambition or their aspiration or, or how they connect with other people or how they might interact with other people, but by their sheer bank account or by their property, where people who are far away from them can actually come in and eat food or even animals of what's left over. The beasts of the field can have what was theirs. He's calling them to trust him, and he's even establishing certain, certain rules and certain laws so that they, they must trust him. Or else what else will happen? Verse 12 refers to the Sabbath day and essentially repeats what you've seen in chapter 20. Where we have the Ten Commandments. Where they should take the Sabbath day and rest. And this should catch our eye because Moses is not necessarily in the game of repeating himself often. So when he repeats himself that you should worship no other God except for me... Well, then we should take note of that. But then also when he's repeating something about the Sabbath, we should notice that too. So what the Lord is telling his people to do in the commandment about obeying the Sabbath, it's to take a break from your work at trying to make a kingdom for yourself and trust me with a day off and I will refresh you. But not only that, in this case, it applies deeper and deeper and deeper where the owner of the ranch should not, ever, not even take the day off, but also his workers and his ox should take a day off. Now, I've never run a business. I don't know how to run a business. It's hard enough even keeping my own personal budget. You give me cash, I'll spend it. I may even spend more with a credit card. But I would imagine if I could make more and more money every day of the week, I would be very, very tempted to not take a day off myself, much less my employees who make me money and make money for themselves. Here, God is establishing a rule where he wants people to rest and trust in his provision, in all things. If you had to work for your daily bread, would you ever take a day off? No. But he's saying, try it. Trust me with it. See what happens when you set aside your life and give me your all. So he gives them laws about the Sabbaths and festivals and days off and time away and but he's also warning them to keep the covenant we see in verse 13. Verse 13 says that they should serve their all or give their all to the Lord. Now, there's some disagreement on what this all means. Does the, does the idea of this verse, I'll just read it for you again, verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you. Does this mean all that he's ever said to them? All that he said to them starting in the book of the covenant, starting in chapter 20, or maybe just all in these Sabbath things? At what point do we start listening to him and keeping his commandments or do we stop 
I think the instruction is that faithfulness is an all-day, everything occurrence that they have to put their lives into. Israel is not to invoke God when they need him, but he is establishing and telling them that they should give their all to him and be reminded that he has been faithful to them all the ways of their lives. It's fitting that the end of the book of the covenant is a reminder to the Israelites that they are a worshiping community who is reliant not on themselves or other people around them, but is wholly and purely reliant on the Lord. The reality that extends to every area in life, but that is most clearly seen in the ceremonies by which they would worship God. So these reminders aren't just reminders like an alarm clock where, oh, it's time to wake up and start the day, but rather it is a reminder that they together are to worship the Lord. Well, let me read to us now from verse 14 where we see more of distinctions in how God wants his people to live in this time. Look at verse 14. It says, three times in a year you shall take or you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread as I have commanded you, and you shall eat unleavened bread for the seven days of the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, and when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Then the beast of the first fruits of your gro- or the best of the first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Because your attention is now a young goat boiling in its mother's milk, <laughs> let me just address that. In all of the things that I could read, we don't purely know what is happening there, except so many laws using the same hermeneutic or the same reading of these laws, so many laws that would go before this are establishing God's people in uniqueness from the world around them. So if the Lord is saying, don't do this, then that must mean that either they are inclined to do that Naturally, don't murder, don't hate people, don't enslave people. Now he's saying don't bother, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. That either means that they would be tempted to do so, and I hope not, or that other people around them are using this for a cultic sense of worship. That there is a God somewhere out there, according to the Egyptians, that we have seen so many times in Exodus before, that there is a God for everything, and none of those gods are in control. So if they are tempted, the Lord is telling them, be distinct in how you worship me by not doing these things that your neighbors are doing. And we look at that, and we might go, that sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. Why would you ever boil a goat in general, especially in its mother's milk? What kind of horrible person are you? And we're reminded that the ways of the world or sin in our hearts always creep in in the most unattractive way. And when we are, by God's grace, able to step back and see what we've gotten ourselves into in sin or in despair, we look at that and we go, that is ungodly. Sleeping with another man's wife is ungodly. Yet how quickly can you fall into it? And so praise God for limitations or boundaries where he is saying this is good and this is not. We need to be rebuked again and again 
on what is true and what is good and what is just and what is merciful. Even in the sentences like this where we go, what in the world is happening? We need to take a step back and go, praise God that he's speaking to his people and how he wants us to live. So we see here that God is building his people up in a distinct way of celebration. So number two in your outline, he's building his people up in a distinct way of celebration. The the final law here, the final section of the law captures how he wants his people to celebrate him as a reminder of his glory. Full biblical worship we see exposed in this text is always corporate in nature. Now, certainly individuals can worship the Lord privately. You think about your private prayer life, or maybe even you sing good songs to yourself, or maybe you read your Bible in the morning or at night, and individuals can carry out these forms of worship by themselves using some of the elements of corporate worship, but they cannot alone worship in the normal manner that Scripture is prescribing. God is calling a people group out and establishing this people group as a new people for the world to see that they are something different than me because all of my life it's been about me but there are people who are sacrificing for other people who are living different for other people who are worshiping someone beyond themselves and so we see this expression of corporate worship coming to us in three annual festivals for different purposes just look at them quickly the first feast is the feast of the unleavened bread this ceremony is to be understood in conjunction with the passover night described in exodus 12 you would have read that earlier this ceremony is a yearly commemoration of their own deliverance from bondage to the promised land and the allusion to offerings at the end of verse 15 indicates that the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is more than a private celebration of the Passover that you may be able to do by yourself or with your family in your home, but now it is a corporate or communal festival complete with offerings of various kinds where God's people come together and are reminded of our redemption, our, our deliverance. Second one is the Feast of the Harvest. It was held seven weeks after the first festival. This feast entails offering to God the first fruits of one's produce. It symbolizes the harvest that's going to come. It's amazing to think or remind yourself about the cost of what it would mean to actually sacrifice certain things to the Lord or give certain things to the Lord. Here they're giving him his, their first fruit. They're giving him their first fruit, meaning their best. And that's costly. When you wake up in the day, let's say you've got 12 hours to live, and you are sharpest at two of those hours. The, the, the parallel would be, are you giving those two hours to the Lord? Or is it just something that you do after the fifth episode of Friends on Netflix? Here they have a festival where they are reminding themselves and worshiping the Lord of what is going to come because of the first fruits that they are offering now. And I think this is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says the first fruits, referring to Christ's resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is the tangible, concrete evidence of the full harvest that is going to come meaning there will be a day when all Christ's people will be resurrected from the grave and will live with him forever and ever. And Christ's offering of himself and his resurrecting from the grave 
is but a first fruit of the harvest that is going to come when he comes back for his people. And so they celebrate this, the Feast of the Harvest. They also celebrate the Feast of the Ingathering. It is tied to the possession of the land. The land's ability to produce is a pure gift of God. A reminder that when they are growing something, regardless of all the tools that they have, or all the irrigation systems that they've inserted, or maybe even all the things that they could do to help these things grow from the ground, they are reminding themselves that they are actually in charge of nothing. They don't tell the rain where it should fall. They don't have certain things grow at certain days. They don't harvest it by the strength of their own doing, but rather they realize that the land itself and the fruit of the land Every single part of their livelihood is a gift from God. And so they're called to remember it. But don't forget the tension that they're called to remember it because they will quickly forget it. So many times in our life, we're called to remember who Christ is, what he has done for us, what the resurrection means for all eternity, for our hearts and for the church. And we very often creep back into thinking about ourselves, wanting the church to be about us, wanting ourselves to be extended to the ends of the earth rather than the glory of God. And so they have the feast of the ingathering, reminding themselves that all of the good fruit comes from the Lord himself. And then our four final laws that are given in verses 18 and 19 are somewhat odd, but they should not be thought of as detached from the previous laws. The Israelites must make sure that they bring the best of the first fruit as an offering to the house of the Lord, a reference of what's going to come where they can sacrifice things to the pleasure of God's name. So quickly in applying these first two points, a distinct way to live and a distinct way to fellowship, I want to remind you of what I said last week, that we, would be, we are tempted to look at these passages and to think, how do these apply to me today? Should I boil a goat in its mother's milk? If I sin against my parents, do they have the law-abiding right to kill me? We think about how these might apply to us today or we might try to gain principles from them, but rather the rationale that we should have is how do we see God and how he dealt with his people after the exodus? Maybe our our statement rather than a question would be now I see better how God dealt with his people soon after the exodus. I remain convinced that what we are as Christians, we are supposed to glean from the book of the covenant in its understanding of the nature of God and what he requires of his people. What Jesus summarized as loving God and treating your neighbor as yourself. What, what he took from the Ten Commandments and actually didn't just make it practical things, but, but got to the heart issue of not just you shouldn't kill anyone, that's true, and you shouldn't kill anyone, but also what are your thoughts towards other people in their murderous ways? That is, that is showing who you really are, like a mirror or like an MRI in your soul. The book of the covenant teaches us that God requires his people to behave properly toward him and towards one another, remembering that he has called his people from darkness into light. And so in the same way, we should reflect the same thing. How are we loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts? And how are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Taking this text from then to today, there are a couple of big pictures that should be on on display as we think about this text in light of the cross and the resurrection. The first one is the law is never mentioned as a negative thing in the New Testament. 
In fact, the New Testament portrays the relationship between the law and the gospel, and it shows it in the coming, or it shows it in the context of the coming of Jesus Christ inaugurating a new era and a new kingdom. It's always seen as something that is, that is causing our hearts to look forward because when we look in the mirror, we realize that we need someone outside of ourselves to have us live in rightful fellowship with the God. We see that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ were something new and amazing in the new, te- in the new covenant, even if they were at the same time the ultimate goal for which God was preparing his people in the old covenant. Jesus himself saw this as his mission in some sense, as fulfilling the Old Testament law. He tells us in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, as it relates to the law, it says there in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he goes on to say a lot more about this. One thing that we gain from this is that Jesus was never anti-law. He didn't just look at the scriptures of old and say, well, that was kind of weird and we're done with that because I'm now here. He sees the very details of the law with vital importance, showcasing who he is to the minute detail, expanding on the teaching of the law, but also as the one who actually can fulfill it in his perfection, the one who, the only one who has ever lived in right relationship with the Father and who loved his neighbor as himself. So Jesus says that the law is not to be taken lightly. And he also says that there are consequences for those who don't obey. And for those who teach others not to obey. These will be the least in the kingdom of heaven, he says. So true obedience to the law, which is what Jesus sets out to explain throughout the Sermon on the Mount, exceeds these expert understanders, these Pharisees who thought they understood the law as an, as an outward expression of what they should do. Rather, Jesus was flipping that and making it an inward expression. And through that, a recognition of what's inside of me is not good, and I need a Savior himself. So what then is the Christian's response to the law? Before we go to the third point, we take God's law to heart. Not legalistically, but as a pattern of conduct, a pattern of conduct in God's world. The pattern is best expressed in the law of love that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, Matthew 7, and in Matthew 22. For as we love others, we will be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Or maybe better, as Jesus would say himself, to love the Lord your God. Not with an end date, not, not with love the Lord your God on a 9 out of 10 level, and then you can take it back at a certain time, but love the Lord your God without ending, and love others as yourself. So God through Israel is distinguishing them and how they should live and how they should celebrate, and then lastly, their obedience. He's calling people out to a distinct way of obedience. We see this in verse 30 through 33. Think of how far the Israelites have come up to this point. What they've gone through what they've seen what has happened to them and what they've realized think of Moses himself started out as kind of a weak little leader and now is receiving the law from God for his people in this section God encouraged the Israelites to trust his generous and mighty provisions for them and at the same time warn them of some of the dangers that they would encounter during their conquest of the promised land and they're settling in to occupy it and to build new lives there for themselves as his people. 
of great inheritance. Let me read to you a couple of verses, starting in verse 20. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. Here we have the promise from God of what he's going to do in order to bless his people and he's going to send them an angel who will guide them fully. Verses 20 through 26 fall into two helpful parts, each command followed by a consequence of either obeying or disobeying that command. The commands are, listen to the angel and worship the Lord. Two things, worship the Lord and listen to the angel. The idea that we see through worship also implies the land that is behind it where they can worship him. And worship and land have formed a major backdrop for much of the book of the covenant, even Exodus as a whole. Regarding worship, the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt so that they might serve or worship, would be another word to translate it, the Lord. They were brought out of bondage, not so that they could do whatever they want, which is our understanding of freedom today, but rather they were brought from one horrible king, and now they are in, they are in the grace and in the presence of a true good king so that they might serve him rather than Pharaoh. Redemption, we see in this pattern, leads to worship. And worship leads to right living or the desire for right living. And the book of the covenant is is concerned about how God's people would live in light of their worship and in light of their redemption. So by focusing on these themes, worship and land, the writer not only reiterates what is said before, but also prepares his people for what is to come. They would have a new object in front of them. That is the angel that they would follow. And by following this angel and by listening to him, they are following God and listening to God. The object of obedience in the first part is the angel, and in the second part is the God, the Lord God himself. Both are to be obeyed if Israel hopes to realize God's plan for them. The angel here in our text, though not a dominant character in the book of Exodus, it very much does, or this angel does very much come up in drastic and in powerful and in very important cases. You think of what happened in Exodus 3 in the burning bush, or what happened in Israel's redemption in uh, Exodus chapter 14. So it's fitting that at this huge almost like another climax in the book of Exodus. It's fitting that God would send an angel that would guide Israel on the next stage of their journey, the way toward Canaan. The people are told to listen carefully to what the angel says and obey him. Perhaps this is an indication of a a close identification of the angel and the Lord. Because they're they're to look at the angel as an understanding of obeying the Lord. Uh, to me, when I look at this, we see this a couple of times in the Old Testament. Um, this is seemingly to us a, a, manifest, a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Son of God himself. 
And why I think that's so helpful to say, so I'm not, I'm, what I'm not saying is this angel is Old Testament Jesus, but what I'm saying is, is that it so closely comes to us a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity and why I think that's important for us to just see and maybe meditate on later and understand because the triune God is not far away from his people at any time. That out of God the Father's love for his children, he is putting someone in their midst who they can follow so closely. We see this in indications of Yahweh's name is in him, or even the pronouns that are given, or if you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, then listening to the angel and the Lord becomes synonymous. What's alarming here is the warning that the angel will not forgive Israel if they rebel. The same expression is used in Genesis 18 with respect to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we have the dire warning of Israel to obey the angel fully or suffer the horrible consequences of not obeying him. So we see the promise of an angel. It comes with a warning, but it's, but it's meant to give great encouragement to these Israelites to follow him and to listen to him and to trust him as they will be tempted to not do so. But also we see more requirements and promises related to worshiping the true God. We see this in uh, verse 24, going through verse 30. So let me read those verses to you. Verse 24 says, You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. So we see in verse 24 uh, another issue or a command to not worship other gods, but to worship God himself. Again, another reminder. It's like more verses can't go by with the Lord holding out that carrot in front of them. Don't worship other gods. And they very much need to be reminded. You and I very much need to be reminded all the time, all day long, every week, every day. And to help minimize this influence, the angel will wipe out the people who are enemies of God. The conquest will take, little, will take place little by little, but the angel will go ahead of the Israelites and send terror into the eyes and imagination of their enemies to where their enemies will run and hide from when the angels come marching in. After entering the land, the false idols will be destroyed. And as a result, they will receive blessings from God, things like well-being or plentiful offspring or a long, long life. And then finally, in our passage, we have in verse 30, it says, Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their God. You shall not dwell or they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Yet a reminder, a warning shot from the Lord 
of how they should live and how they should obey and how they should celebrate. These last verses remind the Israelites once again about worshiping God. And it's, and it's a fitting conclusion to the book of the covenant. What started out at the very beginning in the Ten Commandments now concludes itself at the very end. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve other gods, it will surely be a snare to you. There is promise in following the Lord, in trusting in the Lord, and placing all of your hearts in his hands. But there is also a warning that comes alongside that, that it will surely be a snare to you if you let the enemy influence the distinction that God has called you into. So to conclude, what are we to do with all of these things? Again, I gave you three purposes at the beginning from John Calvin. I now want to fast forward 200 years into the future with a man named Charles Spurgeon, the late English preacher, who gives us five things of how we can read the law and what we are to do with them. Let me list them off for you. The law clarifies guilt to man. So how do we read texts like this? Well, it clarifies the guilt of us. Number two, the law serves to slay all hope of salvation of an improved life. Meaning you can't do more things to improve yourself in order to be saved by God. So the law serves to slay all hope of salvation of an improved life. Number three, the law is intended to show man the sin's misery. You think of what's on the other side of these committed sins that the laws are listing. It's horrific. It's tragic. It's ungodly. And the law is intended to show man the sin's misery. Number four, the law shows the value of a Messiah and a Savior. The reality that man on his own cannot save himself, man on his own, man on his own can't even live life to the fullest or do well or be anyone he wants to be. He needs a Savior, but not only that, he needs a substitute. Where the reality of Christ living in our place, in perfection, in dying in our place, absorbing the very wrath of God that we should have brought on ourselves or that we definitely would have brought on ourselves if we could survive it. But then also that Jesus rose from the grave, a pointing forward to the time where, where God will come back for his own and we will rise from the grave and be with Jesus. The law shows the value of that Savior who does that for his people. And his people did nothing to deserve it. You and I do nothing to deserve God's salvation or God's mercy or God's grace. If he treated us according to the fairness that we deserve, we would be dead. But yet in his goodness, we see through the law the value of him as our savior. And then fifth, the law keeps the Christian man or woman from self-righteousness. So what can we do with the law? Well, I think, I think first we can just trust the God who gives the law to his people. The law shows that he is one of mercy, that he is one who cares, that he is one who loves, who goes beyond himself to actually bring salvation into his world. He also gives his provisional love so we can trust him because of his provisional love. He provided all of it, much like he allowed 
fruits and vegetables to grow in a field, not by the farmer's doing, in the same way that he provides salvation to his people. We didn't do anything to deserve this, and so we can trust him with our whole hearts, not just giving him our first fruits of our lives, but by giving him all of our lives. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Everything in me we can give to the Lord and trust to him. And then second, so we can trust God and we can hold on to his truth. I think I've had like 25 different categories of numbers, but second on this final point in the third category, (laughs) we can trust God and we can hold on to his truth. His truth is the one that convicts us. His truth is the one that shows us who he is in light of who we are. And his truth is the one that guides us. When we see the angel at the end of this section as the one who is called to guide God's people into the promised land, it should very much and very quickly remind us of who Jesus is in our lives. Jesus' final statement in Matthew 28 to his disciples said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. To the very end of the age he is with his people. The spirit of the risen Christ The Holy Spirit himself is always with God's people, though not out there guiding us, but in their hearts, in our hearts, pointing us to Christ's glory and his goodness. God now does for us what the angel did for the Israelites, only more deeply and permanently. He is fully with us at every step on our journey home. He was there at our redemption, calling us, summoning us, Not standing there with his arms crossed waiting for us to go across the river or swing across the ditch. But he's the one that came to us and stood in our place and sent his spirit to guide us to when we are finally at home. It reminds me of what's written in Psalm 43 or Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Is there anyone else you'd rather have in front of you? Is there anyone else you would rather have in you? It's Christ who is the God before us in our trials, in our sufferings, in our blessings, in the reality of we feeling empty or incomplete or not deserving. It's Christ who is there in front of us, drawing us to the Father's glory because he is powerful, capable, and compassionate towards us. He is wise and wonderful and fully in control. And this Despite all of our sins and iniquities, he draws us to himself and keeps us there. One of the most powerful images in the scriptures of what it means to be loved by God is permanently and fully in his grip. What is before us is the love of a savior. And what is in us is the spirit who is pointing us to him. He has been raised from the dead and he has conquered death. And for his glory, he is making his people distinct and he is keeping them so close to him so that he can show to the world his glory and his power and it is for our good that he does so. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you humbled and amazed at who you are through this text. You provide for your people. You care for your people. You instruct your people. You bear witness to your people. You encourage your people. Lord, we ask and pray to you that you will reveal your son brightly through texts like these. That every word 
of your law is a delight to our soul. Father, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would build us up, that you would sanctify us by your word, that you would wash us with your word so that we can enjoy the blessings that you have promised us, but also that we can worship you how you deserve, knowing that it brings us full joy in the meantime. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.